Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Before we get started, let's take a look back at some of Roger Corman's work.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, horror historian Tom Weaver, and tonight's guest, Academy Award-winning film director and producer, Roger Corman. Well, I guess I don't have to introduce you. Um, now, I assume that there are some people in this audience who are as dense when it comes to the internet as I am. For me, YouTube is like, my, my nephew comes over to the house and he says, go to YouTube, type in a man falls off roller coaster. That's what I use YouTube for. But I'm told it's become a real paradise for movie lovers. How does it all work? Well, the title is, of the channel is Corman's Drive-In, which was a title given to us. And uh, as a matter of fact, the title Corman's Drive-In, I was giving some interviews somewhere and I just remembered, I started off because I, I was saying this, Many of you probably don't know what a drive-in is, but many of you possibly were conceived in drive-ins. So we got off to a fairly good start with that. But at any rate, Corman's Drive-In is uh, our channel on YouTube, which starts June 13th. We'll be showing 30 pictures a month, every month, in which we will rotate. So each month there'll be 30 new pictures for $3.99 a month. If anybody is interested, you can watch all 30 pictures or none of them or any combination you want. We will have each month 30 new pictures. In addition, we'll have trailers of our pictures. We'll have interviews with some of the actors, the directors, and so forth. Some interviews with my wife and with me. And uh, I think we're going to have uh, a film critic, a movie critic, our own critic on the, uh, on the channel as well. Great. And what makes now the right time to, uh, to come out with Corman's Drive-In? For a long time, I've felt that the future of films, and particularly independent films, is the internet. It's never been quite right, uh, but I think finally, uh, the internet has expanded exponentially, as everybody knows, and uh, we can show our pictures on the internet directly to the moviegoer, eliminating various middlemen, including distributors, theater owners, if there are any theater owners watching. I love you anyway, but I think your time has passed. Uh, I think the time now is for the internet and uh, we will be showing uh, our channel, uh, Corman's Drive-In, all over the world, which gives us, I don't know how many, hundred million or billion potential uh, viewers. And do you believe digital distribution is the future of independent filmmaking in general? I think di digital uh, distribution is the future of independent filmmaking. Um, I can remember having been around a fair time uh, when our pictures played full theatrical distributions and we could compete with the major studios. If you look at your um, advertising section uh, of the newspaper on Friday when the biggest ads are out other, other than Sunday, today you will see almost no ads for independent films. There's always the occasional film that will break through, but by and large, independent films are frozen out of theaters for a variety of reasons, and going digital and going over the internet is the way we will survive. As a matter of fact, I'm inclined to think it is the way we must survive. Great. And uh, 
in the green room as we were uh, getting ready for this, you told a fun story about the, uh, the recent um, franchise Fast and Furious, and I mentioned that in 1954 you had made a movie with that title, and you had a fun story that I was wondering if you'd share with the folks. Well, what happened, uh, Neil Moritz, a producer at Universal, had made this car racing film, and he didn't particularly like uh, the title. Now, his father was Milt Moritz, who was the head of advertising for American International. And Neil was talking with his father, and his father said, well, the first picture Roger made that started American International was a car racing picture called The Fast and the Furious. What do you think of that title? And Neil said, I think that's a good title. So I got a call from the Universal uh, Legal Department in which they were sort of good guys and bad guys. They said, we know that you have the picture, The Fast and the Furious, and it's copyrighted. But on the other hand, it's a little ambiguous as to how strong the copyright real really is after these number of years. Uh, however, we don't want to be bad guys. We want to pay you something. So we, negoti we negotiated something, and... Uh, I had no idea, and I don't think they had either that the Fast and the Furious was going to be as big as it was. I think we're up to Fast and Furious 6. So we had sort of figured out a little bit of money, and uh, I said, I'd like to get one other thing, and that is stock footage rights. Uh, that is stock footage rights to shots from their library of old films and old TV programs. And I said, it won't cost you any money at all, and it's something that can be useful to me. So I made a picture called Cyclops for the Sci-Fi Channel, which I laid in ancient Rome. And I shot it in Bulgaria in uh, the set that was built for the Spartacus TV series. And Universal gave me, I lived, they lived up to their agreement, all the long shots I wanted. So this medium budget Cyclops picture looks like a multi-million dollar picture because I've got these great shots, uh, establishing shots of ancient Rome, the gladiatorial arena with hundreds and hundreds of people in it, and uh, things worked out well. Will there be a thank you to Stanley Kubrick in the end credits? Uh, uh, actually, um, I think the TV series should thank Stanley, and I certainly recognize him. It, you don't say, we stole this from Stanley. This is an homage to Stanley. <laughs> exactly. And speaking of your new movies, you're still making, I think, four or five a year. What are some of your uh, newer titles, in including the one you're now working on in uh, San Salvador? All right. Um, we started the picture, the year, with a picture in China called Fist of the Dragon, which is a martial arts picture. Uh, we found shooting in China uh, to be able to give us really wonderful locations, and the Chinese wage scale makes shooting in China uh, uh, very attractive. It's the second picture we've done in China. We then did a picture in the Philippines uh, called Operation Rogue, which is an action picture for Sony. And uh, we will be doing Sharktopus versus Terracuda uh, later this month in the, the Dominican Republic. Wow. And that, that's just this year alone? So far, so we'll have three in the first six months. And it's only June. Okay. Do you ever think about retiring or are you having too much fun? Uh, I don't think about retiring because I simply love the process of making motion pictures. To me, it's exciting, it's creative, 
and it's fun at the same time. I want to keep going as long as I can. All right. And um, Corman's Drive-In will enable fans of your movies who saw them originally and probably have seen them on TV, and now they can watch them on their, on their computers over and over. What percentage of your movies, the movies you've made, have you seen more than once? I've seen most of them, that is after, I see them many times during the editing process, but after they're finished, I will see it generally uh, one time at a sneak preview, because I always believe in uh, putting the picture before an audience, uh, just in case something doesn't work out, I have a chance to do a little editing before it's released. So on most of them, the, I see them on at the sneak preview, and that's the last time. But occasionally, I will see a, a, what was a video cassette version, or now a DVD version. Right. So you have seen most of your movies more than once, then you would say? Yes, but very few more than twice. <laughs> <laughs> I know how they turn out. There's no reason to see them. Exactly. And um, it says here. Oops. It says here you've got 400 classic films uh, that you'll be distributing on uh, Corman's Drive-In. Well, first, first of all, de define classic. <laughs> I, why fool around? Any picture I've made is a classic. That's it. Oh, now it might be considered to be a classic mistake, but it's still a classic. Now these are movies starting you don't, you don't own the rights to your old movies from the 50s and 60s, am I correct? I own some of them, but some of them I made for, uh, for other companies. So, but starting in 1970, I started my own company, a production and distribution company, New World Pictures. I own everything just about from 1970 on, and from before 1970, I own about half of the films I made. Oh, wow. Okay. So... 30 a month into 400, this thing's going to be going on for a long time. Yes, we expect that probably we will retain a few each month. So we'll start with 30 pictures and uh, put in, say, and I'm just estimating, I'm guessing here as to how, because it'll depend on how, the, what the audience reaction is. We'll probably hold over five or six pictures from the first month and add 25 or so new ones, each time retaining uh, a few from the previous month. Great. And as um, probably most of these people know, you received an Academy Award a couple of years ago, not for anything you had just done, but kind of just for being Roger Corman, which I think is very, very cool. And it wasn't part of the um, award show on TV. I'm sure it's online, but I have not seen it. What did you say in your uh, speech? Well. Um, I got the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, which I think is just for still being around after a certain number of years. And what I did, and I spoke what I really believed, uh, because so many uh, filmmakers were at the Governor's Ball, where the Lifetime Achievement Awards are given, who were making very big films. And I mentioned that it's fairly easy to do a remake of a $100 million success. But I think the best films are original, personally made films, and I think the independent filmmakers are the ones who, uh, uh, who do that the best. Now, we were uh, on the Oscar cast, Lauren Bacall and I um, 
uh, got the awards that year, and we were introduced, and we stood up, and the audience stood up and gave us a standing ovation, and I got a little bit embarrassed, and I started to sit down. They kept applauding, so I stood up again. Then Lauren started to sit down. They kept applauding, and she stood up again. And finally, when it was over, we both sat down, and she turned to me, and she said, well, we really screwed that one up. And I said, <laughs> I said Lauren, I, I thought it looked good. <laughs> Too funny. Um, your first movie in 1953, the first movie you produced, was Monster from the Ocean Floor, and we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the first day of production in just a couple of months. And on that movie, you and I talked about it just a few months ago at uh, length. I loved your enthusiasm as you talked about that movie because it was your first. Can you give these guys an idea what it was like to make a movie at age 20-whatever when you were still a kid living at home with your parents? Actually, I made enough money off that film that I was able to get an apartment. No. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a major change. We shot the picture. I had sold a script uh, the, uh, that I called The House in the Sea. Um, the distributor to Allied Artists, they made the picture. They changed the title to Highway Dragnet because Dragnet was a popular TV series. But I had made, I think, $3,500 from the sale of the script. And uh, I went to a number of my friends. I uh, graduated with a degree in engineering, and they were, I was the failure of my engineering uh, graduating class. The best job I could get was a job as a messenger riding a bike delivering the mail at 20th Century Fox. But a number of them were quite successful. So I raised uh, from them, I think, a grand, enough money that I had $12,000 in cash. And then I got deferments borrowed things here and there, and uh, it was exciting. I shot the film in six days uh, on the beach at Malibu, and uh, I remember we had a great shot of Malibu, but in the corner you could see just a little bit of Pacific Coast Highway. It was an occasionally a truck going by, but you had to look for it. Meanwhile, the narrator is saying, deep in the Yucatan jungle <laughs> where, where man has never set foot. <laughs> Too funny. Well, speaking of trucks, also, talk about a few of the jobs you had on your first movie, and, and, and truck-related. Truck I was the only producer truck driver in the business because I had so little money. I uh, had all the equipment parked, uh, uh, packed into a truck, which I parked in front of my parents' house, and because uh, I was aware of overtime for the crew. I would drive the truck out to the beach and unload all the light equipment before the crew showed up. They would unload the heavy equipment. We'd shoot during the day, and then they'd put the heavy equipment back in the truck and go home. I'd load the, the light equipment and drive it home. Halfway through the third day of the six-day shooting, uh, the representative of the Teamsters came out and said, who's, the, uh, who's driving the truck on this picture? And I said, I am. And actually, he was a good guy. He laughed. And he said, all right, Roger, we're not going to press you on this film. We're making you an honorary teamster for one picture only. But you're signing with us on the next picture. And I said, absolutely.
<laughs> Funny. Doing research on Monster from the Ocean Floor, I got a kick out of the fact that the trade papers in 1953 all called you Robert Corman. You, uh, you were not a known quantity yet at that point. How, how, um, how often do you watch one of, your own, one of your own movies from the past? How many movies do you see a year, and how often do you watch one of your old movies? We, well, my wife and I would probably see maybe 20 or 30 pictures a year, probably closer to 20, and a lot of them would be, uh, I hate to be overly thrifty here, they would be DVDs sent out by the major studios at Academy Award time. But for certain films, for instance, one of our, one of the guys who started with us is Jim Cameron. We, a picture such as Avatar, we went to the, the theater because a picture such as that should be seen on the big screen. Great. And we're going to get Julie Corman up here on the stage in a minute. And um, I was asked to read how you met her and how you, you're first working with her. Why don't you tell it? Well, I'd been working in Europe. I'd done uh, several pictures in Italy and in uh, England. And I came back, made a mistake, and signed a contract with Columbia, which I later broke because it wasn't working out. And I had an office at Columbia, and I was looking for an assistant. So I called the UCLA Placement uh, Bureau. They sent several candidates out. I offered the job to Julie, who had just graduated from UCLA. She turned down the job, but then I called her and asked her to dinner, and she agreed to go to dinner with me. <laughs> Great. And, um, and she started working with you at that point? Yes. All right. And how involved is she in your productions these days? Uh, Julie's become increasingly involved. Uh, at first, uh, she did some films helping me, then as an associate producer to me, then she started um, producing films on her own, and she's been uh, quite successful, particularly with a series of family films that have done well. And for the last year or so, she and I have uh, produced together on several films. Fabulous. And as long as we're talking about her, I was asked to ask, or to ask to say, that during your career you've had movies for the Grindhouse and for the Art House, and while you're known for your exploitation movies, uh, you were also the first U.S. distributor for folks like Ingmar Bergman and Francois Truffaut and Fellini and Kurosawa and so on. And I understand that Julie has a good story about that. And since we're talking about her, I, I think it'd be a good time to bring her up. Is that all right? By all means. Um, well, since we're talking about a new form of distribution, um, and since Roger is one of my favorite distributors, uh, one of my favorite stories about Roger as a distributor is that in 1972, Ingmar Bergman made the first film that he produced himself rather than the Swedish film industry. And he came looking for what he thought would make him whole, $75,000 from the U.S. territory, and not one major studio would give it to him. So his agent got in touch with Roger and said he had this film by Ingmar Bergman. Well, Roger just about fell over because Ingmar Bergman was his hero and you know he hoped to be the new Ingmar Bergman. And uh, he said he'd take it sight unseen. So the film did extremely well. Sven Nyquist won an Academy Award as cinematographer. It was very beautiful. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. And the film did well, but as time went on, it was making less and less money. 
And most of the films that were being made for New World were kind of straight exploitation pictures. And uh, there was a young director, Jonathan Demme, who had done Caged Heat in the Philippines. And Roger had an idea that Ingmar Bergman's picture should play drive-ins, which Caged Heat was automatically going to play drive-ins, and got in touch with Ingmar Bergman and said, you know, if you like this idea, it would have to be dubbed, and I'd like you to dub it. Ingmar Bergman said, great, I'd love this new audience. And it played as a double bill with Caged Heat. So now with, uh, you know, with YouTube, you're going to be able to do your own double bills, and you can put your feet up, I guess, Roger. So a lot of these artsy films are going to be part of Corman's Drive-In also. Yes. Uh, there'll be a varied group. Uh, we will have the art films. We will have the exploitation films. And I'm not afraid of the word exploitation. A lot of people shy away from it. Exploitation just means you've got something exciting and you're exploiting it. So we will have action-adventure films, science fiction, horror films, uh, some R-rated films. Uh, we will have, say, in the first month, uh, the, out of the 30 pictures, maybe 10 of them will be R-rated. Some of the women in prison pictures uh, that Julie referred to and other pictures as well, Strip to Kill was, uh, was a great success for us. So the R-rated films will be there. The family films will be there, including several uh, from Julie. Mm -hmm. Great. And um, we're going to have a Q&A. You've already spoke pretty much about how you have a global audience now that has easily accessibility to your work. Um, I'm wondering if you thought as a producer if this is the, the new cinema release of yesterday using the internet and how big of a part that plays in packaging new work uh, that artists are coming out with. It is the new release, in my opinion, and it uh, uh, is an important part of our packaging. It's not the only way our films will be seen. For instance, the films we make for the Sci-Fi Channel, the one film we made for Sony, will be distributed by them or through them. But for the bulk of our pictures, I truly believe the internet and Corman's drive-in uh, will be the way to show our films. Uh, Roger, Julie, Tom. Now this is a question I'm sure is on the tip of everybody's tongue, and it's a very important question. When are you gonna remake Attack of the Crab Monsters? <laughs> well, we haven't remade Attack of the Crab Monsters, but for the Sci-Fi Channel, we've done Dinocroc, Super Gator, Piranaconda, Sharktopus, one of the wilder ones, and uh, so in spirit, we remade Attack of the Crab Monsters. Ter Terracuda. Right, yes, coming up. Hey, Roger. Um, you know, as an old-time monster movie fan, I have to ask you, what was it like working with Boris Karloff, and did he ever talk about, you know, making Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, those kind of films? Actually, it was a pleasure working with Boris. I worked with him for the first time on one of my Edgar Allan Poe pictures, The Raven. It starred uh, Vincent Price, who was my uh, continual leading man, Boris Karloff, and Peter Lorre, with Jack Nicholson playing Peter Lorre's son. They, were, uh, they worked out something between them, uh, which do, uh, isn't exactly answering your question, but I always thought was great, which was not in the script. 
they worked out the idea that Jack wanted nothing more than the acceptance of his father, Peter, and Peter couldn't stand the sight of Jack, and they were very funny. But I remember on the morning of the second day of shooting, Boris came to me and he said, I am a disciplined, reliable actor. I learn my lines, I come in, I'm prepared to say them. But Peter is improvising, he never says the line the way it should be, I never know what to do. So I said, everybody stop and we'll have a cup of coffee. So uh, I, it went this way. Uh, Vincent Price could work both with the improvisational technique of Peter and with the straight uh, play the scene the way it's written technique of Boris. And what I start, and I said, Vincent, uh, you're comfortable with all of this, and he said yes. And so I said to Peter, uh, Boris, uh, I love what you're improvising, which I really did, he was great, but stay a little bit closer to the script. And then, as subtly, as uh, nicely as I could, I said to Boris, uh, sort of go with the flow. Know that Peter will now stay closer to the script and I didn't say loosen up, but words to that effect, know that he's not going to give you all the time the exact cue, but he'll come close to it. And Boris was a good guy. He sort of smiled and said, Roger, you don't have to say, say no more. I understand. We can work this out. And they all worked very well together. Oh, Roger, Julie, I'm actually just as a, as a film distributor myself, I just want to tell you that I'm, it's an honor actually being in the same room with the both of you. Um, and uh, what I wanted to ask is just out of all the films that you've worked on and acquired and distributed which, which film are you proudest of? I've been asked that before and someday I'll pick one film another day another film another day I say I can't think of any of them but I'd say of the films I made uh, probably one or two of the Edgar Allan Poe pictures maybe Mask of the Red Death uh, the Intruder, a picture I made with uh, Bill Shatner in his first film, which is about racial integration in the South. And then, of course, uh, the art films, the auteur films of Fellini, as Tom said, Fellini, Bergman, Truffaut, Kurosawa, and so forth. I'm very much proud of our distribution efforts. Uh, during one 10-year period, we won more Academy Awards for Best Foreign Films than all the other uh, studios in Hollywood combined. Thanks very much. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, I devoured your uh, autobiography, How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime, uh, both as an inspirational work as a, and as an instructional manual. How has the process of making movies changed or not changed from inspiration to rap. In the book you talk about, come up with the title first, then the poster, raise the backing, then make the movie. How, especially for like an independent filmmaker now, how has the process changed or not changed over the years? The process there has pretty much uh, stayed the same. I should say that I put tremendous effort on the script, on the story. I've never seen anybody make a good picture uh, uh, from a bad script. I've seen a couple people make bad scripts from, uh, bad pictures from good scripts, but that's another story. So I put heavy emphasis on the script, and then 
even heavier emphasis on pre-production, particularly if you're working with a short schedule and a limited budget. You can't go out on the set and say, I wonder where I'll put the camera. You had better do that in advance. So you walk onto the set and you say, the camera goes there, the actors go there, and this is the way we shoot. So I'm a believer in planning every shot which I've act I'm a believer in that. I've never done it, but I will generally get 80 to 90% of the shots sketched before I shoot. And in some cases, I know I'm gonna take some close-ups or something, I sort of skip that. But uh, I believe very, very heavily in pre-production planning. As to one other thing I should mention, the actual production of films is easier today than it was. The equipment is lighter, it's more portable, it's easier to work with, and working digitally is easier in shooting than working with film. On the other hand, in post-production, digital post-production takes a little bit longer because when you're shooting on film, you shoot, say, for me, two, three, four takes with somebody else. Uh, I, well, anyway, I, I can tell you a story about that. Two, three uh, takes for me. Jack Nicholson, who started with me and was accustomed to do that, when he did The Shining with Stanley Kubrick, Stanley went over a hundred takes on one shot, and Jack is a good guy. He stood right there and gave the whole hundred takes. When it was over, he went up, with Stan, went up to Stanley and said, Stanley, I'm with you all the way, but I want you to know I generally peak around the 70th or 80th take. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I digressed a little bit. In post-production, you used to print the take you wanted, but that's for film. In post-production today, digitally, it is cheaper to essentially, you're not printing, but essentially make uh, uh, the version of every single take. So unfortunately, the director and the editor get caught up in looking at takes that they never would have looked at if it had been filmed. So the actual editing digitally is easier, but the time consumed is a little bit longer. Yeah, when, when it was film and you had to actually cut each time and go back to it, you kind of thought about it and did it. And now it's the permutations, the combinations are endless. You named Roger Corman's autobiography how I made a hundred movies and blah, blah, blah. You made a jillion movies. Why did you call your book a hundred movies? I didn't. Uh, the publisher, the editor for the publishing house called me and said, uh, we've got the title. Uh, we've thought of a number of titles. We've come up with uh, how I made a hundred movies and never lost a dime. And I said, that title is not really true. I've made more than 100 films, and, I, and I've lost a couple of times. Uh, nobody hits a 1,000%. And his answer was, how many times on your films has the title of your film told exactly what was in the film? And I said, call the book anything you want. <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you that for 15 years, and I keep forgetting. Thank you. Hi, how did you come up with Sharktopus? With the title? Well, uh, it started before Sharktopus. It started with a picture I made called Dynacroc, which the Sci-Fi Channel heard about and asked to see. They liked it, and they bought it. 
And uh, I was having lunch with their executives here in New York, and they said, Dynacroc was a big success for us. We'd like to have another one. And I said, Dynacroc too. And they said, and this is why at my age you can, you're still learning, they said, no, in films you can have Rocky too, or later on the Fast and the Furious 6, but we find that if we put two on the title, it doesn't work. We want a title that is similar, a similar subject, but not the same one. And I said, did I say Dynacroc 2? I meant, of course, Super Gator. And they said, right, we'll make Super Gator. So we went through uh, Dynacroc, I kept coming up with these titles, Dynacroc, Super Gator, Piranaconda, uh, I forgot, uh, uh, Dino Shark, and they called me and said, Roger, uh, the executives at uh, Sci-Fi, they said, Roger, you come up with every title, we've come up with a title. And I said, what is it? And they said, Sharktopus, do you want to make it? And I said, no. And they said, why not? And I said, my theory, and I was making up my theory while I was talking, but I do believe it. I said, I think you can go up to a certain level of insanity with these titles and the audience is with you. But you go over what I might call the acceptable level of insanity and the audience says, oh, what is that? And they turn on you. And I said, for that reason, I don't want to make Sharktopus. One thing led to another, I had a good relationship with them. I made Sharktopus. Net result, the highest rating of the year. Uh, the trailer has had 10 million hits on YouTube. So uh, I am, and I'm co-producing this with my wife Julie, the sequel, which will be Sharktopus versus Terracuda. The I now believe there is no limit of insanity on these titles. Yeah, and I'd like to take this opportunity to say there's a heated debate in the office about the next title. And the two that are in competition are Mermantula and Parantula. So could we take a vote? Everyone's uh, uh, and, Mermantula. Who, 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 give us applause for Mermantula. Give us applause. And for? Parantula. That is really interesting. Yeah. That I was about to say, that is really interesting because we uh, put on Twitter a poll both Julie and I liked Parantula. Mermantula won the poll, and it won the applause poll here. So clearly, it's going to be uh, Mermantula. Whatever Mermantula means, I don't know. We have some concept drawings. Um, can these people, I'm not a Twitter person, but tell these people, who maybe they are, how do they follow Roger Corman on Twitter? of a Twitter account, which is partially answered by me and partially by my assistant. But I'm in there to a large extent. But it was originated by our daughter, Mary, in the audience. Well, Mary, take a bow. Hi, fellow Detroiter. Um, you've appeared in like over 30 movies as an actor. I was just wondering if you had a uh, favorite experience, if you like acting, and uh, what that might be. I remember uh, my acting experience is generally with directors who started with me. I think maybe on the basis at one time I was telling them what to do and they can now tell me what to do. But in Godfather Part Two, 
I played uh, the junior senator on the Senate Crime Committee. It was directed by Francis Coppola. And what was very strange about that was everybody on the Crime Committee, except one person who had a running role in the picture, everybody was a writer, director, or producer. And Francis took us all to lunch the first day, and Bill Bowers, who was one of us, who was a good comedy writer, asked the question we were all wondering, Francis, how did you pick us? None of us are actors. And Francis said, I was watching a Senate committee on television, and all of the senators looked very distinguished. We all sort of sat up in our chairs, and then he said, and they all spoke intelligently. We sat up a little straighter, and then he said, and they were all a little awkward on camera. <laughs> and I thought, that is actually great casting. By picking writers, directors, and producers, we knew the process, but we'd all been behind the camera, and being in front of the camera, we were a little awkward. Oh, as a matter of fact, I was the most awkward on the first take when uh, the assistant director said, roll him, and uh, Francis said, action. Before I could do anything, and it was place was filled with lights, I couldn't see anything out there. The lights were blinding. A voice boomed out saying, don't get nervous, Raj, but your entire career in Hollywood depends on how you say those lines. It was Jack Nicholson who'd come over with a prearrangement from Francis to throw me off on the first take. And I thought, forget about acting, not that I know much about acting, I'm gonna say these lines without a mistake, which I did, and then we went for a second take and I, I sort of tried. Well, I guess that's it then. Roger and Julie Corman, everybody.